Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Well, again, let me add my welcome uh, to all of you. Thank you for being at Horizon West Church this morning. Uh, We always say, especially those who are first-time guests, and the reason we do that is because you have to clear the most obstacles to get here. Uh, You may or may not know anyone. You've uh, not navigated this specific directional uh, path. You don't necessarily know what to expect when you walk through the doors. And so we always say a special welcome to our first-time guests. Thank you for coming this morning. Um, But today I also want to especially welcome our fifth time and our 50th time and our 250th time attenders who are no longer guests, your family, you're part of Horizon West Church. I want to welcome you and thank you because we want more than just a good experience for you the first or second time that you come. Our desire is really that you would find a home church where you can be in fellowship with other people, where you can regularly hear the truth of God's word, where you can worship freely. And so for those of you that have made this church your home, thank you uh, for partnering with us. Thank you for being part of the family. I was reflecting this week on why I do church, and it is not because I am paid to be here. It is not because I am the pastor, an employee of the church. Because the truth is, when I went away for college, I found a local church. And I went to church my freshman and sophomore and junior and senior years of college. And after graduation, when I was in Augusta, Georgia, selling mortgages in 2007, yes, that was a bad idea. But nonetheless, when I only knew one other person in that entire part of the country, I found a local church. And for a year and a half while I was there, I was part of church. I'm a part of a local church for some very specific reasons. I believe you are too. Because even though we might have great relationships outside of the church, even though we have full and busy lives outside of the church, it is only when we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are able to regularly and consistently remind ourselves that God is still good, that grace still has not run out, and that Jesus is still the only way that leads to life, both eternal and abundant. So we do church for that reason, not because we want to impress God or someone else, not because we're cultural Christians who have to check it off the box, but we believe certain things to be true, and when we gather, those truths are restored within us. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be in a series that we're calling The Gathering. We're going to return to Paul's first letter to a church in Corinth, Greece in the first century, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. So even though the series is new, it's the same letter that we've been uh, working through over the last several months, and we're calling this series The Gathering because in this part of Paul's letter, he's addressing with the Corinthians the things that are taking place when they actually come together. Not, Not just the issues in their marriages, their home lives, whatever it might be, but actually some real problems that have surfaced in the gathering of the saints itself. Several years ago, uh, there was a Twitter survey. This was back when Twitter was called Twitter. And uh, if you haven't heard, it's now called X. I'll 
add no commentary to that. But when Twitter was called Twitter, there was a survey that asked people to share what's the craziest or cringiest thing that you've experienced in the context of a local church. I saw a list that had 25 on it. I whittled whittled it down to my favorites. Here we go. Uh, We're going to laugh about this, but some of you have experienced these kind of things. One church had a deep divide over the appropriate length of a worship pastor's beard. This would have been a Reformed church, my guess. If you know, you know. Another church was divided over what color of filing cabinets to get for the church offices, whether those should be black or brown. Uh, One church had a rift over which picture of Jesus to place in the foyer. Now, I scratched my head on this one because for the life of me, I can't figure out how someone has a picture of Jesus. I say that tongue-in-cheek, I know what they're saying, but can we just leave all renderings of Jesus out of uh, artistic form? I'd be, go- I'd be okay with that. Uh, one church nearly split over the fellowship meal because some wanted to call it a potluck and others wanted to call it a pot blessing. <laughs> one church was arguing over whether to use cran grape juice instead of pure grape juice for the communion. And another church argued over whether deviled eggs were an appropriate food to bring to a potluck or a pot blessing, if you prefer the term. And while we laugh about that, there is something really sad contained in those responses. What it teaches us is that a church that forgets its purpose will be governed by and ultimately destroyed by its preferences. Now, I want to say that again because it's important that we establish this together. A church that forgets its purpose will be governed by and ultimately destroyed by the preferences of its members. This is also true in a business. This is also true in a marriage and in a family. Anytime that the mission gets lost, what really matters gets sacrificed. And this is what was happening in Corinth. Two prominent pastors of recent generations, pastors Hybels and Stanley, frequently use this expression, vision leaks. In other words, you can't just put a mission statement on a piece of paper and uh, announce it to the organization and hope everybody lives by it. Vision inherently leaks. You've got to get it from paper to people, which is much harder to do. Last weekend, my seven-year-old son, Jonah, and I did our first camping trip together, uh, I'm not necessarily what I would call a camping guy, but we had a blast, and Jonah has come to the realization that he is a camping boy. He said it several times on the trip. Well, I guess I'm a camping boy now. That was his takeaway. Uh, It was a really, really sweet thing. Um, We had a a fun time together. I was concerned about a lot of things, not least of which was that we got there when it was pitch black and had to figure out how to put a tent up in the dark. These are just things that you don't do unless you're a rookie camper. But nonetheless, the one thing I was not concerned about was our brand new, somewhat expensive, queen-sized air mattress that we were going to be sleeping on at night. Until about 12.38 at night, when I woke up, laying on the ground with an air mattress and a seven-year-old kind of on top of me. And so I, fortunately, I had one of those fancy uh, self-inflating deals, so I turned it on. Woke up the rest of the campground for about three minutes, turned it back off, laid down, and I heard, and I went, oh, I didn't say any bad words. You might have thought them. I did not say any bad words. 
there was a leak right by my head. It wasn't even on the ground like where a stick could have come through. I'm like, what in the world? So about every 50 minutes throughout the night, I would wake up in the same position, sit up, turn the thing on, wake up all the other campers, fall back asleep. Uh, so Jonah had a great time. I had a good time, but not great uh, because of this. And I tell you the story to say that like an air mattress with a hole in it, if we're not careful, the vision can leak out of a church. An air mattress exists to contain air. A, a church exists to be on mission, to lead other people to Jesus. And so because vision leaks, we do some things regularly to make sure that the vision will not leak from Horizon West Church. First and foremost, the way we do that is that every week we teach and preach from the Word of God, the Bible. A couple weeks ago, I was refereeing a Sandlot Elementary School football game which is utter chaos because what happens is when they get in the huddle, everyone is arguing about what position to play and what play to run. And so I was refing, going, you know, you're going to play quarterback, you're going to go out. So all of them just run as fast and far as they can. The seven-year-old quarterback throws it about five feet. No one's anywhere near the ball. They huddle up and they do the same thing over again. You go, this is crazy. But the same thing can happen in churches. If we don't have a common playbook, everybody comes into the huddle and goes, I want this. I want to run that play. I want to be in this position. And so we remind ourselves that the playbook that we're going to run from is Scripture. It's the reason that there are things we believe that fly in the face of our culture, but we can't compromise because the playbook says we have to stand on that. Here's another thing we do regularly. We repeat our mission and our vision statements. Again, we're not content just to have those things live somewhere on our website or on a document. We say things like our mission is to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. We regularly repeat the mantra that we desire to be a diverse community of good friends together doing good works and sharing the good news of Jesus. Because we can't just say those things one time. What happens is we'll get caught up with our daily lives as individuals. We'll caught up, get caught up with the programs and the activities of church and forget the reason for which we exist as a church in the first place. It's clear throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that the vision had been leaking for some time. Or you might say it this way, the church had begun to forget its purpose. And this was not only influencing the individual actions of the Corinthian church members, it was beginning to impact the way they met together for fellowship as a church. And so today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to get that out at this time. And what we're going to look at in the last half of this chapter is four kind of sequences that Paul is going to move through. Remember, Paul is the founding pastor of the Corinthian church. This is the great apostle Paul, missionary to the world, and Paul's going to move them through four scenes or sequences. Number one, the problem at hand, and then the solution that he is going to lead them to, a warning in the event that they don't heed the solution, and finally a command, or we might say an application to put into practice. So first Paul's going to address the problem, and the problem is essentially this, divisions and disregard. Let me read beginning at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe that in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or is it that you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. Pretty uh, harsh language for a pretty significant problem. And the issue that Paul is addressing with this particular church centers on what is taking place during the fellowship meals of the church. Now, in modern Western and especially American culture, our church gatherings tend to center on Sunday morning experiences of worship and preaching. Those were certainly present in the first century, but they did a lot more of what were called fellowship meals together. My fellowship meals tend to happen at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A or Ford's Garage. Their fellowship meals happened in each other's homes. And what was happening in those environments mattered to the testimony of the gospel itself. Now let me raise a question that kind of jumps out at us from the passage. Is it possible for a church that professes to follow Jesus and to preach the gospel to actually be more harmful than helpful to the cause of Christ? The answer is absolutely it is. Some might think that, man, the, the, way, to, the way to get America back on track, if, if that's kind of where, how you subscribe, the way to get America back, we just got to get more churches in the communities. We just got to have more churches than Walgreens and McDonald's. Like, we got to get a church on every corner. And the truth is that while churches are essential to not only the lifeblood of our faith, but to the health and good of our nation, there are many churches who would better serve their community and the cause of Christ by turning the lights off and locking the doors behind them. In fact, while many people and hopefully all of us have experienced radical growth and transformation through participation in a local church, I believe churches and church experiences are also the number one reason that people no longer have faith. Do you know that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus himself writes seven letters to seven unique churches, and at the end of each one, he says the same thing. If you do not address the fundamental issue going on in this church, I will remove your lampstand. Translation, Jesus will shut the thing down. We hear reports all the time of churches closing and people go, oh man, the devil is at work. Maybe, or maybe Jesus is protecting his reputation. See, when, when we resort to petty divisions, when, when we have disregard for the very people that Jesus died for, when we got, get caught up in our own preferences and, and drama and dysfunction, there is a place for Jesus coming in and saying, enough is enough. Not, not allowing this to continue any longer. And again, the reason that these fellowship meals are such a pivotal part of this equation is that Acts chapter 2 tells us what was happening that led to the explosive growth of the church. Can I read this for you? It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, these are the, the new Christians, new followers of Jesus, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in other words, when these Christians, these followers of Jesus, sat together across a table, shared a meal together, met in the homes of each other, 
It had a massive impact on the gospel they preached. People looked and saw them and said, there must be something real about these people, and they wanted to be a part of it. Do you know why that was? Because for the first time in the history of humanity, the wealthy and the abjectly poor were sharing food together. Men and women, Jews and non-Jews, young and old, people with different views on what needed to happen with Rome and with Greece and the law and all of these things were coming together, having intimate fellowship with one another and people said, man, there's only one explanation for this. Because you see, it is not surprising when a political party bands together around a common cause and and locks arms and says, we're one, we're together. That doesn't surprise anybody. It's not surprising uh, when people who have a shared culture or language, uh, when when they band together against another culture or, or language. Unfortunately, as disastrous and sad as it is, it's not surprising when we hear yet another report of one nation going to war against another nation. None of that surprises anyone. But I can tell you that what surprises people is when those of different national backgrounds and different languages and different views and and, and different generations, they say, hey, we're going to set all of that aside because there's one thing that is more important than all of that. The problem in Corinth is that the exact opposite of this was happening. And so during their fellowship meals, those with much were going uh, ahead of themselves. They were gorging themselves while those who had little were barely getting anything to eat. I want to kind of paint the picture for you that those who were wealthy in the early church, they could often kind of quit work a little earlier or have somebody else do their work for them. So they would show up to these fellowship meals and they'd bring a whole bunch of bags of groceries and they just dive in. By the time those who had to grind their knuckles to the bone in order to make a living showed up with their few scraps because they had nothing else, the wealthy were already gorging themselves, already getting drunk, and they were trying to find their place at the table and not getting it. It's why Paul says, you humiliate those who have nothing. I think we can all agree, if Jesus, shouldn't, if Jesus doesn't stand for anything else, Jesus stood for those who were without. When Jesus articulated his mission, he said, the Spirit of God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And Paul says, Those of you in the Corinthian church who have much, you're humiliating the very people Jesus came for. Our ability to care for each other across perceived lines of difference or, and this is important, or our inability to do so is going to tell a lost world whether our gospel is true or not. They are watching. They are paying attention. And and when people who are diverse and different and even have different viewpoints on on certain issues, when they set all of that aside for a greater purpose, it speaks to the power of the gospel. This is why Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 11, here, meaning in the gathering of the church, there is not Greek and Jew, not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, those those who were considered the most pagan, or Scythians, that was an ethnic group, or slave, or free, but instead Christ is all and is in all. And so what Paul is doing in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, he's driving the church to the solution, which is this, unity around Jesus. 
the, the solution for the problem of divisions and disregard in every generation of church life, the solution is always the same. It is to unify around the person of Jesus. Let me go back to the text and begin at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Since the night that Jesus first broke bread with his disciples in the upstairs room before the crucifixion, every generation of Jesus' followers has done what's called the communion or the Lord's Supper or some of you might have called it Eucharist. And what this is, is a special remembering of Jesus' death on our behalf by eating and drinking in a sacred way. Today, as you walked in, hopefully you got the elements for communion because we're going to take this at the end of the service together. And the reason that this matters, the reason Jesus invited us to do this regularly is that in communion, our perspective is reframed or recentered by reminding us that all of us need the grace of God poured out to us through the body and blood of Jesus on the cross. It is the one thing that we all have in common. Our bank accounts look different, our houses look different, our cars look different, our kids go to different schools, we wear different clothes, we have different ages and different genders and different all of the things. But when we gather as followers of Jesus and we take the bread and the cup, we're saying there is one thing that matters more than all of the stuff we have difference, one thing that unifies and that is the body and blood of Jesus. It's important that you know when we talk unity at Horizon West Church, we're not talking about what I would call squishy unity. <laughs> squishy unity is really popular in the culture right now. It's the, the we are the world mantra. It's the, the John Lennon, all you need is love. Or it's as our, one of our founding fathers said, Thomas Paine said, the world is my country, all mankind are my brethren, and to do good is my religion. With a nice pat on the back, I'm sure. But that cannot preserve a people through the hardest things that they might go through together it's just not enough it's not substantive enough the body and blood of Jesus is the substance around which we unify as followers of Christ so I might say it this way Christian unity is different in that it is bought with the blood-soaked body of Jesus and is fought for by flesh and blood people who think differently from each other and who wrong each other but who above all see themselves and see ourselves as followers of Jesus and therefore as brothers and sisters in the family of God. That is a different thing altogether. And it all comes back to Jesus. Now it probably will not surprise you to know that problems began arising in the church before the 21st century. We are not the first generation of Christians to, to argue about theology or how to do church or who gets to serve in what ways. These conversations have been going on for 2,000 years. In fact, it was so pronounced and there were beginning to be such deep divisions in the first century that the leaders of the Christian movement gathered in Jerusalem and had what is called the Jerusalem Council. This event is recorded in Acts chapter 15, the very middle of a book that tells the story of the first church. And what they were trying to parse out, the solution they were trying to come up with was essentially this. 
If the table is what matters, if the fellowship meals is what's driving the gospel, if bringing Christians together in unity is important to the heart of Jesus, and it is, how do we do this? When there are Jewish people who for thousands of years have been told that certain dietary restrictions apply and that certain things are not to be eaten and certain things are an abomination, and we also have Gentiles or non-Jews coming to faith who have no such qualms about any of that. And they basically said this, we cannot expect non-Jewish people to subject themselves to all the rules and laws that Jewish people have for themselves. And oh, by the way, it appears that Jesus did not require it. (laughs) Jesus preached a message of grace through faith for salvation and left it pretty much at that. So they said, we can't require the non-Jews to do that. But here's the problem. If we want them sitting at a table eating together, and if they're eating meat with the blood still in it, or, or food that has been strangled to death, things that Jewish people would just literally be nauseous over, we've got to figure out a solution because what matters is that we keep all of these people in fellowship with each other. And you know what they did? This is utterly remarkable. Those leaders of the early Christian movement took the 613 laws that they had been given at Mount Sinai Sinai under Moses and they whittled them down to four. From 613 to four. One of the rules that they came out with that they said we're going to apply in all the churches had to do with sexual morality because sexual morality has mattered from the garden all the way to today. It still matters. Paul said it is the will of God for you, your sanctification that each of you not practice sexual immorality. So that was number one. You know what the other three rules they came out with were? They all had to do with what is eaten at table when Christians gather together. And they found a way to say, we're going to do our best not to offend our Jewish brothers and their conscience when they can't be around this, but also to not be burdensome to our Gentile brothers and sisters when they are free to eat and drink as they wish because they're following after Jesus. So Christian unity was the driving force behind the solution for the early church's problem. Unity around Jesus. Later this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to identify someone and maybe even to begin thinking about this person now with whom you cannot even imagine coming to a table with. Somebody that you've kind of written off, somebody that you've not been able to forgive, somebody that you just can't be around, can't tolerate, and somehow you've begun to justify the reasons for why I just can't. Now, I'm not saying you can't have boundaries in your life. I'm talking about harboring unforgiveness, resentment, and bitterness, especially toward another follower of Jesus. And so before we take the communion today, I'm going to invite you to do some work in your own heart, to examine yourself. And if that person exists in your world, to begin to make that right with them. So hold that thought. But in order to get there, there's going to have to be a perspective shift. And this perspective shift is going to come in the form of a few questions. Let me give them to you. As I think about that person that I'm having trouble extending relationship to, first, if grace has been freely given to me, how can I withhold it from someone else? Next question, if all that I have is from God, how could I indulge and enrich myself while others go hungry and without? And finally, if Jesus died to save this person, who am I to refuse them a seat at the table? See, we got to be careful that the grace that we've received from Jesus that came freely to us 
doesn't become the bucket that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that we just hoard it for ourselves, but that through us, others receive the same grace that we've been given. I believe maturity as a follower of Jesus comes from seeing everything through the lens of Jesus' death. When we deal with our spouses, with our children, with our coworkers, with those who have wronged us through the lens of the cross, it begins to change things. And Paul's going to go straight from there to the next scene, which is a warning, and he's going to say this, the warning is against God's judgment. Let me jump back into the passage at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the reason why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This warning kind of revolves around a phrase that we see in verse 29, which is this, to eat without discerning the body. You say, what in the world is Paul talking about eating without discerning the body? I think there's two possibilities. I actually think they could both be embedded in the the idea. The first is the idea that we would eat the bread of communion or take the communion without giving regard to the fact that we're recognizing the death of Jesus. We just kind of do it flippantly, casually. It's like, oh, I'm at church. Yeah, we're taking communion. Pop, go. He says, hold on. Don't do this without discerning the body. In the context of the Corinthians, they certainly weren't discerning the body because it's hard to get drunk when you're focused on Jesus' death for you, right? So this was evidence. They'd gotten way, way off track. Paul says, don't do this without discerning the body. But let me give you a second possibility. This is where our pastor David Youth at First Orlando John Young Campus, this is kind of where he comes down on it. But he believes, and I think there's merit to the idea, that without discerning the body means without recognizing your brothers and sisters who are with you at the table. So when I take communion and I just go, this is just between me and Jesus, but I've got unforgiveness toward a brother or sister, I'm withholding something that, that rightfully belongs to them. I, I'm, I'm going ahead with my own preferences and not giving care to them. When we fail to discern the body, is it possible that we're opening ourselves up to God's judgment? What, whatever, wherever you fall on that, whether it's discerning the body vertically, meaning the death of Jesus, discerning the body, meaning the body of Christ, the church, it should be clear that the warning against taking communion in an irreverent or unworthy way is not about whether you sinned last week or last night. And the reason I say that is many of us grew up hearing that before we take communion, we should examine ourselves to make sure there's no sin in us. Now, I'm all for that, but I think you should be examining yourself more than every six to eight weeks at church. In fact, I don't know that I've ever examined myself and not found sin in my life. Let's just be honest. This idea that, man, I've got to have arrived at kind of this moral superiority before I take the, 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 the communion, it's actually the exact opposite of the reason that we have communion. When we discern the body, we recognize that it is not our moralism, it is not our merit, it's not how good we were last night or last week, it is simply the blood of Jesus that saved us. The unworthy is about doing it in a flippant, a casual, or an unforgiving way toward our brothers. 
In Corinth, the church's indifference to these issues had invited God's judgment in the form of, as we saw, several illnesses and even deaths within the membership. You're thinking, this is a little harsh, right? Like, I thought the New Testament God was a little bit cooler than the Old Testament God. We sing a song, same God. The same God that was with Moses on Mount Sinai, the same God that called Abraham, the same God that was with David on the battlefield against Goliath. He is the same God. There is mercy and there is judgment. And here's how I believe it works. And this is not just from this passage, but this is the whole of Scripture. James tells us that God's preference is mercy over judgment. If you've come into church today with a view that God is kind of looking to like squish those who have done wrong, he's looking to disqualify you, that is the opposite of the heart of God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and loving kindness. But like any good parent, if we blow past the the barriers or the guardrails, he's going to step in. Scripture calls this God's correction or God's discipline. And and, and like you as as a parent, God is wishing or hopeful that we ourselves would do the work of correcting. I love it when my kids recognize, hey, I'm having a bad attitude, I'm being disrespectful, I'm going to stop myself, I'm going to change course. But you know, sometimes it doesn't happen. And as a good parent, you know what you do next is you give consequences, you give restrictions, you do things to help them to correct their behavior. And according to this passage, and I believe according to others like it, what Paul is getting at is the first step is to examine yourself. That, that's the ideal. Man, don't even make God get involved with the mess. Like just take it to the Lord, surrender it to him and move on. But sometimes God may have to step in with correction. I want you to know that every action of God toward you is done in love. Even the things that hurt, they're done in love. He wants more for you. He wants better for you. But there's also this warning that if we blow past the correction, we stop up our ears, we, we get hard-hearted, we're arrogantly defiant of God's correction, it is possible that we open ourselves up to judgment. I see no indication that Paul's saying that these people are somehow now you know, outside of God's salvation. But whatever judgment means, I don't want it for me, and I don't want it for my family, and I don't want it for this church. And so there is a call to examine ourselves, examine our hearts before we have fellowship and communion together. Finally, in the last two verses, Paul is going to get to this scene, his command, or we might say an application for the church, and that is simply to practice love toward one another. Last two verses of the passage, verses 33 and 34, end in this way. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It's a pretty simple expression, but it has monumental implications. He says in verse 33, he says, wait for one another. What a great thing to just apply to every context that we find ourselves in. Wait for the other person. Be slow to anger, slow to speak, James says. Practice deference, practice patience. I can tell you confidently that the the first indicator that I'm starting to get off track, the first indicator that I'm probably not spending the time with the Lord that I need to, or that there's something in my heart I'm not dealing with, the first indicator, the first flashing red light is my impatience. Anybody else be bold enough and honest enough to say, amen, brother, like that's it, man. Impatience toward Nikki, impatience toward the kids, impatience toward traffic, impatience toward the awful cell signal that we have in Horizon West and for some reason can't figure out. 
And it's really hard to love people when you're agitated. It's hard to love people when you're worked up inside. It's hard when you were impatient to slow down enough to have that conversation or to lovingly correct rather than erupting in anger, to slow down and let the person pass. Rather, it's hard to do that when our spirit is churned up with impatience. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be there in just a few weeks, Paul begins to define for the church what love looks like, and the first thing he says is love is what? It's patient. Love is patient. Some of us could do well to just sit with those three words for the next week. You don't need to read an entire chapter every day. Just sit with the words of the Apostle Paul in that passage. Love is patient. Love being patient for the Corinthians meant, hey, if you get there early and you've got your food, just wait. Care about something more than your appetite. You got brothers and sisters. They got got challenges. They're they're not going to get to the table as quick as you are. Just wait for them. And, and, And oh, when you begin to eat together and you've got enough food for eight meals and they're eating scraps share with them well I earned it yes but in the body of Christ there is to be equity so love each other enough to defer let me say a quick word I know not all of us are parents but many of us are let me offer a few quick words to parents it is paramount that we begin to teach our children patience Uh, if you've ever had toddlers you know that patience actually isn't hardwired into the life of a child They don't come out going, Mom, what do you want? So we have to teach it. Let me just offer a few real practical ways to do this. You can teach your kids patience by teaching them to wait until everyone is served to begin eating. Those who are of like a few generations ago that are listening or, or here, you're going, wait, are there parents that aren't teaching this? Absolutely there are. That was that was just like a a given. Like nobody eats till everybody's served, but that's not true anymore. We've got to teach our kids patience. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. Not everybody's been served. Wait, we haven't prayed yet. Like, slow down. There's something more important than the food you're about to eat. Another way you can teach patience, and many of us do this, help them to, to, to complete their homework or make them finish their chores before they get the screen time. Prioritize the things that they need to do before the things they want to do. You're, you're teaching, you're reinforcing the idea that patience is important. Um, and finally, and this is probably the one I see the most, I'm not saying this because I, I, I'm not guilty of it, I'm sure that I have been, but don't allow your children to interrupt your conversations with their needs and demands. We see this all the time, right? Like adult conversations happening, dad, dad, yeah, 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 you know, no, 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 they can wait, gosh darn it, like, <laughs> you're like, I'm in Mayberry now, man, no. <laughs> they can wait. They can say, excuse me, dad, hey, just a second. Do, do, do. you know like it can, it can, patience and you go well do those things really matter it, does it matter we're just teaching kids to be polite it's not about being polite it's about learning habits of the soul that will sustain them through the hard things of life when the job is tough when the marriage is hard when, when you want to give up on all of it they've learned to be patient to endure to wait on the lord if we don't learn patience we can't learn love there was a 20th century Japanese theologian, Kosuke Koyama. He was fond of using the expression and wrote about it, the pace of love. Kosuke Koyama's take was that the pace of love is three miles an hour because that's how fast we walk. 
Uh, we live in a high-speed world of driving and interstates and freeways and internet, and I'm not real patient with the internet we even have. And so slowing down enough to walk at the pace of love. Did you know that Jesus walked everywhere he went? Now, obviously, they didn't have cars, but there were other modes of transportation, and we keep seeing Jesus and his disciples walking from town to town. And you know what would happen as they walked? Somebody would interrupt and say, hey, Jesus, I have a child, I have a parent, I have a spouse who's sick. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm, I got to get to this town. He said, take me to him. In fact, one time a guy said, you don't even, I, I don't even deserve to have you come. Just say the word. And Jesus is like, okay. But Jesus always slowed down enough to love people. He stopped to bless babies. No other rabbi was doing that. He healed the sick. He taught the crowds that were not allowed even to be in the temples. Jesus walked at the pace of love. And ultimately, in the greatest demonstration of patience, of endurance, ultimately the greatest expression of love in human history, Jesus allowed his body to be nailed to a cross for the blood in his body to be poured out, to begin to suffocate, which is the way that people would die on a Roman cross. And in the middle of it all, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our challenge is this. If we have not been wronged like Jesus has been wronged, and we haven't, and if Jesus has offered us grace, and he has, who are we to withhold that from another? In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper or the communion together. I, I want to encourage you, if you did not get the elements when you walked in and you want to participate, would you slip a hand up so our guest services team can get to you? We're going to take a minute or two because I want to make sure everybody that wants to participate can. And as that is happening, I want to encourage all of us to do what I talked about earlier, which is to examine ourselves. Now, part of that examination could be there's sin that I've not confessed that I need to release to the Lord. I need to, I need to acknowledge that and let it go. But I want to move even beyond that. And I want to ask, are you discerning the body as you take the communion in these two ways? Are you understanding that you're standing before God has nothing to do with what you've done, how good you might think you are, and has everything to do with the blood of Jesus. And secondly, as you take the elements that represent the body and blood of Christ, if there's somebody within his body, meaning another Christian, another believer, that you're holding at arm's length, I'm actually going to encourage you to do this. Could be right where you're sitting. Could be that you slip out to the lobby. Before you take the elements, would you send that text would you make that phone call? Would you maybe, maybe the text says, hey, I need to get together with you soon. Can we grab coffee? And that other person might be going, this is totally out of the blue. But you understand that your vertical relationship with God has everything to do with your relationships with other people. Discern the body. Take the bread, take the cup. We'll do that in a moment together. The song that we're going to sing is an old hymn called Jesus Paid It All. And in singing, we're acknowledging both that Jesus paid it all for us, meaning our sins have been atoned for, but we're also acknowledging that that person who's hard to love, that person that we're tempted to just continue to keep at arm's length, Jesus paid it all for them as well. So sing, reflect. If you need to take a step of action, I encourage you to do it during the song.
This time, if you've received the elements and you're ready to participate with us, I encourage you to take out uh, the wafer on the top part of that. Paul tells us in the passage we read that on the night Jesus was betrayed by his disciple, he took the bread, broke it, gave it to those who followed and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat of it when you do in remembrance of me. So we eat and we remember the body of Jesus. The scripture continues that in the same way, Jesus took the cup, gave it to his disciples, said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. We take remembering the only thing that has saved us, the blood of Jesus. In just a moment, we are going to dismiss in kind of a different way today. Uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to encourage us just to kind of quietly make our way out. Once we get outside, we can have conversation and, and spend time together. I want to do that. But let's leave in kind of a reflective posture.
thinking about what Jesus has done for us. If you are new here or, or newer here and we've not yet met, I'd love to get some time with you at our Blue New Here tent. I'll be out there immediately following the service. I would like to close our service in this way. I'm going to pray a prayer over you. Let's do that together. Father in heaven, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray your blessing, your favor. God, I pray that where there is brokenness in their lives, in their relationships, in various parts of who they are, God, would you bring the restoration that the body and blood of Jesus gives us, God? It's not just about forgiving our sins. If that was all it was, it would be more than enough and more than we deserve. But God, you also want to free us and to bring the healing that comes through the stripes of Jesus. God, I pray healing. I pray peace. I pray freedom. And God, if there's anybody that has not yet submitted their life to you, surrendered their heart to the safe keeping of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, would you let this be the day? We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.